My name's Eric. I, uh, I direct the youth and the worship here. If uh, you're new, welcome. It's awesome to have you. Um, we'd love to get to know you. As you know, we're four weeks into our series called Joy in the Morning. Um, not joy in the morning, but joy in the morning, um, in our suffering. And uh, last four weeks, last three or four weeks, we've, we've had a couple different preachers in the pulpit really setting up kind of the structure of the Psalms. What is the Psalms? Uh, we saw that there was five books in the Psalms, and the Psalms really tells the story of the entire Bible. And so we've, we've been seeking to understand how to wrestle with lament to God through times of suffering, injustice, and sorrow through all these five books of the Psalter. And so this week, well, we're going to be in Psalm 22. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 22. There's also Bibles underneath you, in front of you, um, underneath the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you can also follow along with the slides that are going to be behind us. Um, and so we've seen that lament is a majority of these Psalms. Lament takes up a majority of the psalmist's voice. And so the question really for us has not been, should we lament? But how? How do we lament? How do we give God our deepest questions and struggles? And how do we do so in a way that leads us to joy? Joy in the morning. And so before we get into our text, I think it's helpful to clarify what we actually mean by, by lament. And so lament is simply just a vulnerable expression of grief or sorrow towards God. Probably all been at that place where we've, we've given those things to God. And so um, doing it is one thing, but learning how our lament leads us to joy is something that is, uh, we're going we're gonna to take a, a deep dive in today. And some of us, it's, it's interesting, when we hear the word vulnerability, we think of honesty. And, and they're, they're pretty close, but they couldn't be more different. And, and the, the, the difference between them couldn't be more important for this. And, and the, the way that I like to think about honesty and vulnerability is honesty is when somebody comes up to you and, and they ask you how, how it's going and you tell them. Right, you're honest. They asked you a question, you're honest. Vulnerability is when you, not having been asked a question, freely go to somebody and say, this is what's going on. This is what's wrong. And there's a, there's a difference. There's a difference in, in marriage. There's a difference in friendships when you trust somebody enough to go to them and say, this is wrong. And there's a lot of us in here that are honest but are not vulnerable. My wife is unbelievably vulnerable, something I struggle with, being truly vulnerable. I'm honest when you ask me a question, but am I truly vulnerable? And when we, we step into lament, bringing our expressions of grief and sorrow towards God, that's vulnerability. That's vulnerability. Because God's often not standing right in front of us. God is, is somebody who is not physical, he's spiritual. And so we have to go. We have to go. And so it's difficult to be truly vulnerable with God and others because of two things, I think. Two things that we see just naturally happening around us. And, and one of those is, is our culture. Our culture says, bow to your feelings. Your feelings are king. What you feel is important. What you feel is truth. So there's no reason to go to God because you are God. And if you feel it, it's true. And if you think it, it's right. But there's also some of us who, who have grown up in just deep religiosity and you've been told, stuff your feelings. Before God, there's no place for your feelings. God's not messy, clean it up. Don't give him your lament, don't give him your grief. 
Don't give him your sorrows. He wants clean because he's holy. So stuff it. And I believe the Psalms give us, gives us a third and right way to process our feelings. And in, in Psalms, the cry of the Psalms doesn't say, doesn't say vent your feelings. doesn't say stuff your feelings. It says pray your feelings. Pray your feelings. And so bring them before God. And as you pray them, you process them before a living God. And as we look at one of the most famous questions that, that we'll see in our, our, our Bibles um, that's directed toward God by David and by God, our goal is to pray our feelings and to know how to enter into the raw reality of suffering with the Holy God. And so there, there's some of us here today that before we get into our text, there's some of us here today that um, we, we feel like we can't be vulnerable with God. Maybe, maybe you've been shut down by people in your life in your times of, of greatest need, by a parent, a friend, a sibling, someone you were really relying on, you were willing to be vulnerable, you bore it all, but you feel you can't because those around you have, have let you down. And, and you project now that lack of love onto a God who, that's not his character. And so you, you, you treat God like, like the people who have let you down in your life. Or, or you've grown up in a culture of, of religious hiding where, where God's not grace. God doesn't enter the mess, right? And so we, we put on a face thinking that if we continue to hide, that Jesus will just forget that we even have struggles, that Jesus will forget that we're even there. And so we don't bring it. And then there's, there's some of us, right, that we won't be vulnerable with God, right? One, because we don't trust God. We don't believe in God. We don't believe that he is trustworthy. Or we, we believe good doctrine, but we don't actually trust it. We trust that the boat can hold us in the water, but we don't, we don't get in. We're not willing to get in. And that's some of us here. And, and because you know, um, you, some of us don't trust God because we know that if, if genuine before, the throne of God, that he would expose us with, of, of things that we don't really want to change. And so if we're honest, we, we won't be vulnerable with God. It's not that we can't, it's not that we don't, we, we won't be vulnerable with God. And there, there's some of us that are honest but not vulnerable with God. And what I, what I mean by that is, is God brings us some, some conviction. Other people come to us with, with, with things and, and, and upon those people investing in us, we, we change those things. And from the outside, it looks like change, but on, but on the inside, it's really not. And our, our change, our honesty is really for others. And it's really for bettering ourselves and looking good before God than, than really seeking the living God. And so we're honest, but not vulnerable. We're willing to change for other people and for other things, but we're not bringing them to a living God and say, change me. And then there's the people that are vulnerable and are genuinely going to him with their questions. And this is where David finds himself. This is where some of you find, find yourself in the midst of, of, of suffering, in the midst of chronic pain, in the midst of a, a long bout of, of sickness or struggle or events that have happened to you that are unjust and you're vulnerable with God and you're genuinely crying to, out to him with your questions and you have some questions for God but you're not questioning God. And your suffering is real and your journey's been long. And David finds himself in this place he finds himself in this place where, where he's crying out to God for answers and he's asking a question that I think is a little bit uncomfortable for us and we're gonna dive into that. But I, I believe that if we wanna understand how to enter into our suffering and the suffering of others in a way that leads us to joy and communion with Christ, we must understand these four things. 
that we wrestle with when we bring our laments before God. There's four things that we wrestle with. The weight of the why, the fear in our tears, the truth about trust, and the danger in our anger. And so we, we're going to start by um, opening up to verse 1 and looking at the, the weight of David's why. Why, my God, have you forsaken me? Let's read it. It says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? So David, in the midst of what many commentators don't really know, there's so many so many events in his life that could have been taking, taking place, his, his son, um, sin, um, events just going on as king, wars, um, whatever he's in, he's in the middle of something that is bigger than him. Um, injustice is happening to him. Things are happening to him um, in his heart, physically, mentally, spiritually, and he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm abandoned in this moment. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And behind David's why and behind all of our whys in those moments where we cry out to God, when we give our lament to God, is a feeling that, that we don't know the purpose. So we cry out because we, we don't know the purpose behind the pain. We're not God. We can't put it together. We can't put the puzzle together. And so we cry out to God looking for answers because we don't know. And we also cry out because we don't have the power to change our circumstances. And while we think that, that we can, we, we even make efforts to do so, they fail. And we're powerless. And the weight of these questions bear on us because we don't have the power to change it. And some of us, when, when we're asking those questions, we're asking those questions because we feel responsible. And there's, there's part of David that, that, that is entering that. Is, is this me? Why have you forsaken me? Am I responsible for this abandonment? And in our suffering, we, we look inside and we say, did I cause this? Or we feel like our life has earned us different results. Anybody feel that one? I've been obedient. I've trusted. Why have you forsaken me? Why does my life not look like I think it should? And we see in verse 9, David expresses this. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust, trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Meaning, I have been faithful to you for a while. And as close as I was to my mother, as close as I were, I was on my mother's breast, right? From, from jump, I have followed you. And as close as I felt then, is as far as I feel from you now. My life has warranted different results. And so David was a man after God's own heart, faithful from his youth, slain the giant of Goliath, a man who felt close to God, and yet he's far, and that's some of us here today. And so we feel the weight of this why. And left to our own hearts and minds, these questions can either strengthen us or crush us. And some of you here are, are crushed under the weight of those, those questions. Why is this happening to me? What is the purpose? And some of us have understood what we're trying to understand today, that in our why, in the weight of that, there is a hope, as we will see. And it can strengthen us. 
So David continues um, with a cry in verse two. He says, oh God, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. In verse 16 through 18, he says this, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. So there's things that are happening to him that are not necessarily caused by him. Maybe, maybe it's because of, of his great faith, right? That, that, that these things are happening to him. Dogs are encompassing him, right? People are mocking him. People are encircling him. They're coming after him. But he's also having a dialogue with God himself. And David continues his lament as he processes his feelings and circumstances before God. And we see that there's legitimate fear behind these tears. He cries day and night and he gets no answer. And so the second thing that we we wrestle with in our our lament is the fear in our tears. The weight of the why and then the fear in our tears. And in all of our suffering, right, in all the suffering that we go through, how big or how small, there is a fear, a fear that David has here that our tears will never stop. And David cries out, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. By day and night, I find no rest. Will my tears ever stop? David has a severe fear of the future. What will my future be? Will I ever find rest? So fear that there's the horizon, right? There's no rest there. That pain will continue. And often instead of feeling and grieving and entering in, giving it to God, we escape, we stuff, we mask, we avoid. And our future, the weight of our future bears on us and it crushes us. And it becomes so real that our future paralyzes our present. Will I ever get rest? It paralyzes our present. And instead of moving forward, we stay stuck. We stay stuck. And behind David's tears, there's also a fear that that he's too weak to be used by God. Anybody feel that? That there's a fear that, that not the future is ominous, but that God does not have a plan to prosper me, the fear of failure. In anybody's suffering, do you feel the fear of failure, fear that your life is not worth it, fear that you're not strong enough to push through the pain, fear that well, you'll ultimately fail by God's standard and by the world's standards when it's all said and done, that the people around you that see this life for you, that see this future for you, and you're stuck in this suffering, there's fear that you're too weak, that if you're just strong enough, you could get through it. And in this fear, in his tears, David says in verse six, but I am a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And in his tear and in his fears, David David changes his identity. And his fear and his tears become his identity. And this is a danger in all of our suffering that it becomes who we are, it becomes our identity. And, and no longer is he man after God's own heart. No longer is he the man who trusted in God to slay Goliath. No, no longer is he the young shepherd in Bethlehem. He is a worm. And this is a false identity that he has believed because his fear has overtaken him. And he begins to pity himself. God doesn't want to use me. Nobody loves me. Nothing ever goes right in my life. 
people will never accept me. And instead of using his tears to help him grow and overcome, sometimes our tears, they paralyze. And we begin to believe the lie that we're a worm and not a man. I am a worm and not a man. I am not worthy to be used. Children of God, even a man after God's own heart, can lose their identity in the midst of their fears. But in the midst of this abandonment, his fears and the injustices that are being done to him, he reminds himself of what's true in verses 3 through, th- through, three through 5 in one of the most beautiful, beautiful verses in this whole passage. And, and in these verses, we uncover the truth about trust, which is our third thing. It's truth about trust. In verse three through five, it says this. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. In the midst of all of this going on, yet you are holy. What do we learn about trust in David's lament to God. We learn this, and this is so important, guys. That the evidence of trust is not found in a person who never asks questions of God, but a person who asks many questions of God. We often think that, that God treats us like, like employees, like he's given us a task, and if we just do it well enough for long enough and we don't bother him, then we're a faithful employee. And God wants the opposite. God wants you to be the intern at his desk every single second of the day. Do I need to print these copies? Do I need to do this thing? Do I need to do these spreadsheets? Do I need to call this person? What about this? What about this? What about this? You see, questions don't communicate lack of trust. It's the going that communicates the trust. And so we tend to think that the more mature you are, the less you bother God. And it couldn't be far from the truth. And the most mature believers, the believers that are, are stepping into that, that are stepping into that lament, that are asking the questions of God, those are the people in our midst who are asking those questions daily, hourly, minute by minute. They are not the people that have graduated and now know, I got this, God. I don't need to keep going back to you. And the truth about trust, guys, is it's far more subtle than we think. You might have missed it, but there's deep trust in David's words in in, in verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's two things that are happening here. One, he's going to God. In his time of greatest need, he is going to God. He's not going to himself. He's not going to friends. He's not going to other people. He is going to God, what? My God, my God. That is a personal cry from a God he's familiar with. My God, I've been here before asking these questions and we tend to focus on the question, how could he ask God, why have you forsaken me? Of course God hasn't forsaken you. God is God, omniscient, all-knowing, ever-present. How could you ask God a question like that? That's disrespectful, is it? Or is the fact that he trusts God with the deepest questions in his life the evidence of deep trust in a man like David? So trust is more about our willingness to ask God questions than the actual questions we are asking. You guys get that? Are you going to God? Although it may seem that if David is doubting or cursing God, he's actually trusting 
in God. He's saying, another way to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is, God, you are far off and I want you close. I want you close. I don't want my circumstances to change. I don't want things in my life to be better. I am crying out for you first. If you change my circumstances, great, but I want you close. And, and for you parents out there, you don't, you don't necessarily care what questions your kids are bringing you, do you? You want them to ask you the questions. If you found out your kids were, were going and asking their teachers and asking their friends, and you would, you would covet that. You'd say, you can ask me any questions. And, and sometimes you get hard questions. As, as, a, as a youth leader, we get those hard questions, but, but we want that from our kids. At least you're asking me. Ask me those questions. You can ask me any why, and I'll walk you through it. And as parents, we, we long for that. And Jesus, God, longs for that. Ask me the questions. Ask me those questions. Trust me. And when we get that, it's not the questions that define our trust with our children or our students. It's the fact that they're coming to us. And the truth about trust is that it's, it's only developed if we give God, give God our most vulnerable and deep thoughts, guys. Are we willing to give that to God? And David's trustworthy cries in verse one and two lead him to the truth in verse three. And there's a quote from Eugene Peterson that says, prayers prayed long enough will eventually lead to praise. Prayers prayed long enough will eventually lead to praise. In other words, over time, trust will lead you to truth. And so often we think it's the other way around, don't we? If I just know the truth, then I'll trust in it. But David immediately, he's questioning things and he trusts in God, my God, my God, and it leads him to verse three, yet you are holy. His trust leads him to the truth. And so there's a, there's a time actually on, on trail, right, when, when the truth, when the truth of, of the map that we had laid out for our, our entire wilderness trip just completely got thrown out. Our truth and in that moment when we looked at our kids and we said, we have to hike three hours back from the three hours we just hiked in the snow, there was no truth that we, we could have said. Say, but the, but the trail is good. Uh, everything was messed up, right? And in that moment, we didn't appeal to truth. We didn't appeal to what we thought was right because that, that, had, that had gone out the window. We, we appealed to trust. Would you just trust us? Because we don't, we don't know where we're actually going, right? But would you trust us as your guides? Would you trust us? And that trust, each step of the way, eventually getting to camp, led us collectively to a deep truth that God was with us the whole time. And the amazing thing is that God is not a faulty guide. God, God knows the answer to those questions. And so when you go to him, he's guiding you in truth, but he wants your trust. He doesn't want you to just know what to say and know what to do and know the response. He wants you to actually take the step and trust. Ask him those questions. So for our prayers to truly be lament, they must be grounded in trust and deep longing to get God at the end and not a change in circumstances, not an answer to our questions, but to get closeness to God. So often, um, often when we don't get those answers, we see our fourth thing happened. Um, the fourth thing that we wrestle with 
when we try to lament to God, and that's the danger of our anger. And in the midst of our suffering, we can become angry. Is this anybody? You're, you're suffering and you're angry. And you're typically angry at three different things. You're angry at yourselves, you're angry at others, and you're, or you're angry at God. So when we're angry at ourselves, we feel like there's, there's things that we could have done differently. There's people we could have talked to, doctors we could have seen, events we could have uh, avoided, things we could have said. But those things didn't happen and we're left angry at ourselves. And the danger of anger, guys, is that it's really selfish. The focus is on you. In our anger, we can place the penalty of our suffering and our anguish upon us. We become guilty and we condemn, we condemn ourselves for things that have already been paid for on the cross. And so when we get angry at ourselves in the midst of our suffering, what we're saying essentially is, Jesus, your sacrifice was not enough. That I need to take this into my own hands. I need to condemn myself. I need to self-atone for the sins that have already been paid for by Jesus. And I just feel bad enough about myself. Just get angry enough about myself for, for, for a long amount of time that it'll be justified justify the feelings and the guilt that I'm feeling and I will atone for myself and Jesus said I already paid for that in that moment you are replacing God saying I need to make this sacrifice a sacrifice that God already made and some of us we, we get angry at others and this prevents us from seeing our faults and from growing because it's, it's someone else's fault my suffering is, is them my work situation is, is them the things that are going wrong in my life are, are other people. And so, so it's selfish because it's not our problem now, right? And the things that may be actually really wrong underneath all of this suffering and all this pain and all of these questions that is just sitting there untouched continues to sit because it's other people's fault. And with the focus off of us, there's no desire to look at our own hearts because we're too busy blaming others. And lastly, guys, there's some of us that can really become angry with God. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Are you angry at God? How could you do this to me? How could you make my life like this? How could people be coming against me? How could be, these things be happening to me? How could you abandon me in this moment? And you're not just asking the questions, but you're not going to him with trust. You're saying, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm angry at you. And often when we're angry at God or others, we're just... We're just defending our ego, guys. We're just defending our, our sense of self. We're saying that, um, God, you didn't give this to me because I deserve it. And I'm angry at you. And the really interesting thing, guys, is there's a passage in the Bible in, in John chapter 11 where Jesus encounters two women, Mary and Martha, who have just lost their brother Lazarus. And in this moment, we see each of these four things that we just said, the weight of the why, the fear in our tears, the truth about trust, and the danger of anger. We see them come to life in this story, Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha. And the interesting thing about this account is that Mary and Martha, in the weight of their why, in the weight of questioning why their brother Lazarus has just died, in the weight of, of questioning why Jesus was four days late, they asked Jesus the same exact thing, right? They, they actually tell Jesus the same exact statement. They say, Lord, if you had been there, 
my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here four days earlier, my brother would not have died. Mary and Martha were in a similar situation, were they not? The weight of their brother passing in the midst of their suffering. Jesus is late. The one who could really change things is late. Their brother is dead and they're deep in the weight of their why. So Martha Martha processes her feelings first, right? And she says, Jesus, if you would have been here, these things would would have changed. My brother would not have died. And looking at Martha in the midst of her pain, Jesus says, I will raise Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Martha? And some of us, that's, that's, that's where you're at right now. Jesus, if you would have been here, these things would have changed. And Jesus is coming to you and he's saying, I will raise Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Jesus is not just consoling Martha, guys, get this, by saying that it'll be okay because I'm gonna raise Lazarus and I'm gonna fix all of your pain. What he's saying is fix your eyes on the sun because the sun is resurrection and the life has the power to restore your soul in the midst of suffering. He doesn't give her consolation, he gives her resurrection. He says, I am not just taking you somewhere that's better, I'm restoring the things that are in your midst, and the best thing for you right now is not for your brother to be raised, it's for you to know that you believe in the Son of God, who is resurrection and life. Do you believe that, Martha? You who are questioning if God is really true, if he's trustworthy. You Martha's out there, do you trust this moment that God is the resurrection and the life? He may be raising Lazarus in your life. He may be restoring the brokenness and the suffering in your life, but do you believe that he is the resurrection in your life? Is he, is he the resurrection in the life of your soul, not just your circumstances? We see that it's more important to trust and believe in Jesus as the resurrector in our life in the midst of our suffering that it means to have a change in our circumstances. Jesus was not seeking to take Martha away from the bad things, but he was seeking to to show her that he was greater than any bad thing that could ever happen to her. And in her greatest, greatest moment of need, Jesus speaks to Martha frankly and appeals to the truth about trust. Do you trust in the truth that I am God? And then Mary comes to him. And Mary says, Jesus, if you would have been here four days before, my brother would not have died. She says the same thing. And what what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. Trust in me. No, what does he do? He says he's deeply moved and Jesus wept. The same question from two different people in the same story in the same place, with the same circumstances, and to one, Jesus says, do you trust in me? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? And to Mary, he enters in. He enters into her tears, and he cries alongside of her. God of the universe. He knows. He knows the purpose. He has the power to change it. The two things that we want, before we're going through suffering that is great, we want, we want to know why and we want the power to change it and we feel helpless because we don't. And Jesus, in this moment, he has the power to do both and he's crying, why? Why would he not just say, it's gonna be fine, I'm gonna raise Lazarus, it's gonna be great. He enters in, you know why? Because Jesus is perfect love, guys. 
Jesus' perfect love. And perfect love enters in. Perfect love becomes so in love with the story that he's written that he writes himself in. To save not just circumstances, but souls. And he weeps with Mary in that moment. And her fears in her tears slowly go away. And that's our call, guys. To enter in. And what Jesus is showing is that even if you had the answer to those two questions, if you suddenly had the power to change your circumstances and you had the answer to all of the whys, guess what? There would still be tears. There would still be pain. There would still be grief because the God of the universe that had all of those things still was bruised, was stricken, a man of sorrows, a man of tears because he's perfect love. And the interesting thing is that the, the words used, Jesus was deeply moved, is translated in every original language by every major scholar. There's 100% almost agreement on this, that deeply moved really should say bellowed with anger. And when Jesus is, is before seemingly unbelievable circumstance, a man who's been dead in the grave for four days. It says a deep anger welled up inside of him as he arrived at the tomb. And the danger of our anger is that it's self-centered, right? We blame God, we blame others, we're angry at ourselves. And, and Jesus, with the power to change this, he's not, what, notice this, he's not angry at himself. He's not angry at himself. And he's not angry at the victims. He's not angry at Mary and Martha. What is he angry at? Jesus is angry at death. Jesus is angry at sin. Jesus is angry at the things that we need to be angry about. When we're angry at God, when we're angry at us, when we're angry at our, our circumstances or others, we're not angry at the real thing that is really separating us from God, and that's death. And Jesus, Jesus knew in this moment, because we see a couple verses later, the Pharisees, after he said, I am the resurrection of life, they knew we must kill this son of God. And he knew in that moment that in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, he'd have to walk in the grave himself. That in order for somebody to be raised to life, that he would have to, to die. So Jesus was angry at death. He felt the sting and Lazarus' funeral was his as well. And the only thing, the only way that Lazarus would walk out of the grave is if God chose to walk in. And we see a God that is so committed now to ending suffering and death that he came in the world to suffer and die himself. And that's our savior, guys. We're not David communicating with a God who who is not dead and resurrected. We're communicating with a God who, who is pierced and bruised, as we see in verse 16. Just like David said, I, I'm pierced and bruised. They cast lots for my clothing, as we see in verse 18. That was Jesus. His garments, cast lots for his garments. I was, I was on you from my mother's breast, David says. I trusted in you from my birth. Well, well wasn't that Jesus? Perfect. 
from birth in the temple at 12, teaching. Jesus had every reason to have a life that was not full of suffering, not full of tears, not full of grief, yet he's a man of sorrows. He knew the answers. He had the power to change his circumstances. He trusted in the truth of God and and trusted in his will, and he did not cast blame or anger, but forgave his enemies. Yet he finds himself abandoned on the cross and looking forward to the future king. David's words are seen on the cross with Jesus Christ in abandonment far greater than David's, far greater than we can ever understand because this is perfect son of God, fully man, fully God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Jesus' why, we find the answer to all of our questions. He was searched, he was abandoned. Jesus paid the price. And it's interesting that after Jesus' death, there's no scripture in the New Testament with a cry quite like David's, with a cry quite like we see in some of the lament psalms, with a cry quite like Jesus Christ's. And as Edmund Clowney put it, I think this is because Jesus didn't just inherit our sin, our shame, our death, and our punishment on the cross. He inherited all of our collective whys. That he didn't just take the things that were, were keeping us from him, the things that we normally think of, sin, death, shame, but he, he took our whys and he asked the why on the cross for one last time in the way that we asked it before Jesus dealt with it. And because he asked the why, guys, we never have to ask the why in the same way again. We never have to ask why like David wondering Jesus is truly the God that is living inside of us through the Holy Spirit. If God is the resurrected king who is walking alongside of us because we know now after the cross, after what Jesus did for us, that all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And instead of our suffering now becoming an explicable mystery or a feeling of abandonment by God, it becomes our communion with Christ. That our suffering Our abandonment, when we enter into that, we are entering into the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And what once was abandonment is now communion. Jesus was calling for God and God turned away from him. So now that, that when we cry out to God, turn away, I don't want you, now he comes. He got the abandonment we deserved so that we could have communion with him and his people. And now, willingly, we choose suffering as his little Christ on earth by means of communing with others and communing with him. His suffering on the cross changed suffering from wreckage to reward, from loss to life, from surprise to now our expectation. And now we say things like, those who lose their life find it. Blessed are the persecuted, and to live as Christ and to die as gain. Things that David was not stepping into before the cross. And now there's no fear in our tears of being involved in the suffering of others because we know that our tears will produce communion, will produce praise, will produce trust, will produce reward. And to those who feel like they can't be vulnerable with God, God has felt the abandonment that you have felt. And he's a good father who identifies with your pain and will never leave you or forsake you. And to those who don't want to be vulnerable with God, God may not change your circumstances, but he has the power to resurrect your life and fill the emptiness that you feel. God is not just circumstantial. 
He is the resurrection and the life, and he can fill the emptiness that you're coming here wanting and panting for as a deer pants for water. And to those who, who, are, who are honest but not vulnerable with God, Jesus is the perfect one with no flaws, gave God his deepest questions, and now we feel the freedom to go to God and not wait for him to come to us. Don't just be honest with God, be vulnerable with God. Don't wait for him to convict you. Bring those convictions to him and say, God, search me and know me. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. As we come to the table, are you, are you coming and searching for God to speak to you? Are you speaking to God? Are you giving him those questions? Are you confessing that to him and saying, God, change me from within. I want you close. Don't just be honest. Let's be vulnerable. And to those who are genuinely vulnerable and suffering, Jesus sees your tears. And he's crying with you like he did with Mary. He knows your struggle and he's your shoulder to cry on. Jesus doesn't have cookie cutter answers. For Martha, he was the truth. He was the life. He was the resurrection. And for you, you who are struggling, He's your tears as well. He's the father. You can come and just bury your face in the side of, side of his shoulder and just cry. Jesus is perfect love. May we do the same. May we look on our brothers and sisters and say, man, I need to remind you that this is true in your life. Do you trust it? But may we also be quick to just cry. Say, as you offer those up, I'm offering the same same things up. God, why, why have you forsaken me? I want you close. And as we go to the table, it's important for us to understand that the table is not complete without our call to suffer with each other and to willingly choose tears, to willingly enter into people's suffering, to willingly take on one another's burdens. If we come to the table and we remember the blood, we remember the body and we take of that and we confess and we repent, but we don't go out and suffer with people and walk in that and look somebody in the eyes and say, I want to cry with you. And fight along somebody and say, I want to fight for this truth in your life that you may trust. And do we really believe what we're taking in these elements, the body and the blood broken for us? Are we breaking for other people? Or are we just sitting by waiting for circumstances to change, praying in the distance, we coming alongside each other. May we do that. May our suffering lead us to deep communion with each other and deep communion with Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. God, that in the midst of our greatest suffering, the midst of our questions, our anger, our tears, our pain, that you are God who is so good. You know when we need the crying shoulder. You know when we need to be reminded of truth. God, we thank you that now in your suffering, God, that you paid for us once and for all on the cross, that we can now willingly enter into suffering with deep joy and hope, knowing that this is our reward that our suffering leads us closer
to a suffering servant who died on our behalf. And that is our reward. That we don't necessarily get a change of circumstances, but we get a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be willing as the people of God to encourage each other in this hard task, to enter in and step into the mess, into the suffering, into the pain, and to have relationship with Jesus that makes other people ask questions. We pray that that would be our mission. We pray that that would be, God, God, our purpose, that people would know us by our love. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This moment.